For this Operation Opera podcast, Elisa and I had the opportunity to chat with tenor Robert Norman, who's a dear friend, and he's somebody who has been embarking on a regional career, and we got to chat a little bit about that, what that looks like, uh, what opera is looking like these days, and what it is to create a niche for yourself. He's a character tenor and somebody that really enjoys comedy and is very physical. So we had some good conversation about all these various things. Enjoy. So, I, well, I just wanted, I wanted to ask Robert if he could um, fill us in on his journey and sort of finding his niche and, and his fach. And because you say you bring your best to, the, to every audition, every performance, and that's wonderful because that means you have a certain level of awareness about what your best is and and I just was hoping you could talk for just a minute about um how you got there sure um yeah I I kind of have a strange journey in that uh I was a troubled kid in um I I I, uh I had a lot of kind of family trauma um when I was very young and Uh, My parents separating, my brother passing away, my grandfather passing away, all, and then my dad having surgery, all kind of in the span of four years. And so I was a really, really angry kid who didn't know how to deal with it. And my mom's solution was to take me and drag me to musical theater when I was in eighth grade, uh, seventh grade. And so um, I kind of found a home doing musical theater throughout high school, um, but still didn't really know who I was through high school and through the beginning of junior college, uh, I applied to Cal State Northridge um, and auditioned there and got turned down to the music program uh, right out of high school and went as an undeclared first semester and got terrible, terrible grades and um, was diagnosed with uh, clinical depression and had to go home for, to junior college for a couple of years. And after two and a half more years, went back to Cal State Northridge. I got declined to the music program a second time. Um, and then try. I don't know why I was so determined to go there, but I did. I stayed again as an undeclared uh, and finally got into the music program on my third try about two weeks into the semester. Um, but it wasn't until I think I was 21 or 22. Um, so I didn't start till very, very late. And when I got into the music program, I was trying to get a degree in musical theater, but I didn't do enough research to realize that they didn't have a degree in musical theater, Hmm. which was just dumb. Um, so (laughs) I tried to double major in music and theater and I had an advisor tell me, you'll be here for 75 years. You can't do that. You have to pick one. (laughs) So I could always get on stage and act, but I couldn't sight read. And so I chose music having no idea that I was signing up for a classical musical training. (laughs) That's awesome. Awesome. Um, So I found myself uh, in, in an operatic degree, taking singing songs in Italian, having never even heard an opera um, at the age of 21. I didn't do my first opera role until I was 24, um, which you know, I'm already <laughs> like there are people that are I've I've worked with people that are 24 that have already sung at San Francisco Opera. So, you know, I'm I starting it. I started very very late. And when I did my I did do my first role, um, and it was just kind of a it wasn't a role that necessarily fit super well in Julius Caesar. But then the next production that we did was Hansel and Gretel, and I sang the witch. Mm. And um, I had. It was finally kind of the first blending of the new voice that I was finding with my comic sensibilities that I'd had throughout musical theater. 
Um, I always wanted to be the leading man in musical theater and was constantly put into the supporting role. We did, I did Guys and Dolls. I wanted to be Sky Masterson. I was Nathan Detroit. I did Anything Goes. I wanted to be Billy. Uh, they made me Evelyn Oakley. I wanted, I, we did Grease. I wanted to be Danny or Kanicki, and I was Roger. I, every single supporting role were, that had any aspect of comic element, that was me. So when I got to opera, it actually became a pretty easy transition to move into doing something like The Witch, where I was a comic character, huh. and um, I had a coach named Ann Baltz who was vital to where I was at that point. Um, I was 24, and I asked her, you know, do you see me actually having a career in this? And she said, actually, I think you'd make a really good character tenor. So I took that, and I just made it part of my identity. Um, Anytime, you know, I did I did some more kind of lyric roles because I, I do have maybe a little bit more of a lyric Leggero voice. Um, I hate the idea that, oh, you know, there's a character tenor sound. I think their character tenors have the ability to color their sound in certain sure. ways and have yeah, more flexibility to go outside of the box mm-hmm. um, than maybe most singers do you get to play more characters um but i don't think that there's I, I think there's a stereotype to what the sound is but i know a lot of character tenors and the successful ones all break that stereotype and i like to think that i'm one of those as well so i i kind of melded a little bit more of a leggero sound to um comic sensibilities and what i discovered and what i've always known about myself is is that um i have really good comic timing on stage and I can make people laugh uh, because I have no shame and I have no problem being an idiot. <laughs> I, have, I, have, I think you've both been in shows with me where I have showed absolutely zero shame. Um, yes. <laughs> that is accurate. Yes. <laughs> so uh, what I learned to embrace was a sense of comic timing that is maybe not necessary. And maybe that's what gives me my standpoint and my, my, uh, rather my viewpoint of what it, what I think opera can be. Um, there's so many times in opera competitions and things like that, where everybody just sings the most dramatic, you know, they sing their, their arias and their arias are always, there's so much death. Love, okay. Yeah. Love, sadness, death. And I'm the only one I feel that ever goes into an audition and tries to make people laugh and or go into a concert and make people laugh. And there's so much comedy in opera. And like Bohème is hilarious until the last 10 minutes. Um, and I do get the irony of that, but there's so much comedy that gets lost. And so my niche in is that I feel that I can bring a level of comedy um, to to the roles that I play that don't nece- that doesn't ne- necessarily exist. I mean, not that it doesn't exist, but I don't see a lot of other people trying to bring that level of comedy. Um, mm. To you know, there's there's we're all trying to make art so much that I just want to make people laugh. Yeah, when when you can focus on a connection like what you're talking about, like you want to make people laugh, like you, you, that that to me is is a process thing. Like the goal is to make them laugh, but it takes you know it takes something to get there, and it takes them like there's a certain amount of trust that's exchanged, and right. and I think um, and I think that that is one of the things that makes you a really great character tenor and a really great performer. Thank you. I, I will say the fact that I am, you know, I'm sure either one of you sopranos will show up at an audition and there will be 30 of you auditioning for a role. I show up at a lot of auditions and if there's another character tenor there, I'm usually very surprised. Um, in a span of, a few, you know, two weeks in New York's in New York, in New York doing auditions, I heard maybe two other character tenors at six, seven, eight auditions. Um, there's just not as many of us. And so consequently, I have had a lot of performance opportunities, even if they haven't been at the, you know, the tippy top level, but, you know, getting to do seven, eight, nine opera productions a year, um, gives me, has given me an opportunity to try and hone what I know that I can do well on stage where I know other people may, may not have the, just, just the stage time. Just the ability to be on stage and to figure out what 
they do and what they know. So I've kind of gotten the best of both worlds in certain certain aspects. Definitely. So yeah. I just want to ask one follow up question. And it ha- I was once in a production where they had a double cast. And first off, like double cast, I I know it happens, but it's always hard. I feel like because it's just hard. Um, does anyone agree with that? Yes. No. It's okay. Yeah. yeah. I I'm not a huge fan of it but yes I'm just not a fan of it but something that I liked about the way that the director handled it is instead of saying cast a and b or cast one and two um, they said cast apples and oranges and it was so interesting because that maybe that sounds really silly but I I loved that like I love that because it, it you know I mean one I really like fruit but two, I really like the idea of not having, I mean, anytime I hear numbers like, you know, first, second, third, like to me that, that is, you know, in de- you know, that's in descending order or A, B, C, it's like A is the first, you know, B is the, right. And even, even within this tiered system of, you know, houses, we're talking about, you know, the biggest budget and, you know, the most, you know, productions, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I wonder if, if that actually is a disservice to the art form, simply because does money necessarily mean quality? Well, mm, yes. Uh, <laughs> in a I, word. I, I yes. kind of hate to put it in, uh, by the way, I am looking at it, San Diego is now a, a B-level house. So I'm not going mm-hmm. to say that money does equal quality. Um, there are certain aspects that you that you can't that you can't buy with a lower budget like there's a certain level of production value that just and I've I've been I've worked in there's um, one D level house that I've worked with several times and the production quality is always fantastic um, that the the theater that we've performed in is a gorgeous like 1200 seat house kind of in oh. a place you would never ever ever expect it the acoustic in there is phenomenal. They mm-hmm. get amazing performancer, uh, performancers, amazing performers to come in. Performers. Um, and the production quality of the set is always great. That being said, um, they have a tendency to have to skew towards more of a minimalistic idea of... Um, sorry, that was me. Ding! Um, it's done. Minimalistic. <laughs> Get it out of the oven. No, I'm just sorry. Nothing. Go ahead. I got a, a text message that's on me. Um, so, oh, good. It's a group text. So, hopefully, I'll get lots of those. So, uh, <laughs> there you go. Uh, You're coming to an amazing point. I can tell. That's why it's ringing. Go on. Seriously, this is, there we go. Do not disturb. Um, so, um, yeah, the, even though the, the production value is really strong, um, you still like you still can't compete with a company that has a budget of you know a million or more for a season or for even a single production um the production value is just going to be stronger it doesn't mean that you can't find the same level of artistic quality um sometimes those smaller companies can you know it's there's less bureaucracy there's less involvement of uh, the money fix and and all those things so that you have a group of people that are doing it because you know they're really committed to the project as opposed to I really need to make I really need to make this money because I have to pay my rent for the next six months or whatever so yeah you know in one way yeah money doesn't equal quality and in another way you know I don't know it's um you can kind of get it both ways yeah, I guess I just have been wondering, like, where where is the line? Like, where do you like, for example, you know, it's become more and more popular in productions to use uh, projections, 
you know, that's yeah. sort of become a big thing. And there are times when I've seen it, like the magic flute that came uh, to LA a few years ago, which was, I believe, a German production. I'm not sure. I think it was, it was a European production of some kind. The, the silent film version that's been going around. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and I loved that. Like, I loved, I loved the projections in that because I thought they were really interesting. They helped, you know, tell the story. And, you know, and then there are other times when I see projections and it's like, okay, we didn't want to build a set. Okay, so, so oh. there's the door, you know. Um, <laughs> I'll say about that production with the projections is, and I've spoken to somebody who has knowledge of this because I, I had actually contacted a company that was um, looking to do that production and they didn't have uh, a Minosotos listed on their website and I had contacted them about it and I was told that they were, uh, they did have somebody um, and because he was familiar with the production and I told a director friend of mine who's directed nationally and he said, oh, that's not a production that you want to be a part of. And I said, well, why, why do you say that? And he said, because there's no, like, he's like, I know people that had been in that production and there's no artistic fulfillment in it because everything, all of the staging is done on a grid because you have to fit into the projections. So you move mm-hmm. here to there. So where you're saying that, yes, the, the projections may have been um, of a strong quality as a performer to go through rehearsal and know that I need to move my arms six inches on a grid um, instead of getting to, you know, put forward whatever my <laughs> performance of the character would be. That brings in the question, you know, is the, is, and this is all being said without having been a part of that production, without having seen that production. I've heard wonderful things about it, but is it, where where's the fulfillment you know what i mean right personally versus like what it created i guess what was cool about it is that it created an ambiance right like it created a feeling that sort of permeated everything because of the you know being a cog in a wheel rather than yeah you wanted to see it and it's done it's done very well at every house that it's gone to as far as i'm aware and it's one of the most popular productions of magic flute um the interesting thing that you mentioned about projections that uh, having spoken and like worked with directors who work with projections is the idea is that, oh, let's do projections because they're cheaper. Well, they're not, actually. Definitely not. So they're cheaper to run. They right. are not cheaper to design. To build, absolutely. To put together. A graphic yeah. designer create all of that, and that can be just as expensive. Yeah, because you have to make them, I mean, specific to a space. Like, you know, you can't. You can't just have a template and then sort of throw it up on any wall. Like it has to, you know, it's going to get more and more granulated, you know, as, as wide or, or, you know, if it's not large enough. And yeah, well, it, and it affects as it. As a graphic designer, you're creating something from nothing. You you have to create an entire concept that, you know, the, I just um, did a production where there was a projection of a house and it, it, it really did. I know you were talking about projections sometimes working and not working the projection really did work for this because it had to be it was a house that was it was actually a production of seven deadly sins um kurt vile's seven deadly sins and the house behind the family um built up and then kind of fell into disarray i mean that Hmm. there's there's not some you know bunch of stock images on the internet that you can some you know stock right um, digital projections that a designer can just grab and go, Oh, I'll just take this one for free. No, it takes a lot of hours to build that. And right. it costs money to pay those graphic designers to design that especially right. when they're from scratch. So you're not going to type into Google decaying cabin, right. multiple so, images and see what comes up. That, <laughs> that is as uh, many of my discussions with you typically are Rachel, a very roundabout way to say that, because we've talked about many aspects of budget, um, but it doesn't. It just means that you know, it kind of catching the the quality and the artistry is, and and putting on a piece of art is catching lightning in a bottle, and you need the right the right circumstance and the right situation, and you know, it's what we all strive to 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 show. And it you know, having a, a, a larger budget does not necessarily mean that you're going to have that, but having a smaller budget doesn't mean that you're going to have the intimacy and the buy-in from all of the singers and all the performers because they're all there doing it because of they love it because their fees are so small. <laughs> yeah. I This is making me think I actually haven't seen um, 
an opera production with projections before. And so I kind of was looking up on YouTube a little bit to try to understand what you guys are talking about. <laughs> but um, it makes me wonder, it makes me think of our, our previous podcast with, um, remind me of his name, Rachel, a baritone. Baritone. Who, who then became a tenor? Toward... Oh, did he? Be... Yes. Maybe. Yes. And he's working toward sort of um, different angles. Oh, like virtual reality opera. stuff. Yeah, that was, that was Bradley. Yeah, Bradley. Yeah. That's right. And I feel like, though, that with the projections, I mean, it is sort of turning to a, a multimedia presentation of opera rather than letting, letting you know, the orchestra and the, and the singers and then, you know, some sort of set speak for itself mm-hmm. as, a, you know, as theater. And it's interesting because I think that, you know, we do now um, have so much interest in Netflix and YouTube and video games and I mean film has always been a big deal I mean for many years it has um, but to try to I don't know to try to interface the two is it because opera is too boring without you know sort of like further visual stimulus hmm I've never thought and please I, it's it's just so my thinking is is that there's there's always going to be that argument and there always has been that argument whenever a new technology was incorporated into opera when supertitles were first included they were reviled and and much of the industry hated them because how dare we dumb this down for the the kind of masses to that you know they sh- but but now they're like I can't imagine going to an opera without them uh, you know part of what I think we need to do as a um, as an industry is to evolve and to grow and to move with the technology so even though the music was written in the 17 18 1900s doesn't mean we need to continue to use the same technology that they had we can use our current technology to continue to tell the story and sometimes, yes, there are people that are going to use it like it's a new shiny toy to try and get somebody into the audience, um, which I think is something that the larger budget companies can fall into, and and maybe not even necessarily larger budget, but the ones that are kind of right on the edge of a, you know the A or B, where um, the idea is well, the only way we're going to get people in is by the grandiose of the grandiose of our the spectacle of our productions. Um, and they spend so much money on the production. And those people also may fall into the trap of, well, the only way we're going to get people in is by giving them digital projections and showing them the newest in technology and putting that on there. I actually think that projections work really, really well sometimes to tell the story. It's just like anything. You can have a set that's just big and expensive and up there and not doing anything, and then you can also have a set that becomes a part of the character and helps tell the story. And so... When projections are used correctly, it's a wonderful new tool. Another aspect, I mean, opera is a visual medium. Yes, there's music, but so much, uh, if, it, if it wasn't a visual medium, we would all just listen to recordings. And so, so much of that visual medium, we can use projections and use ne- new technology to, um, to tell the stories in maybe new ways that we didn't have access to before. Um, hmm. It's it's funny you, you talk about movies and I was just reading in um, a little bit of trivia about the he's a French director named Luc Besson who mm-hmm. um, directed uh, Leon the Professional and Lucy and Fifth Element and he's got a new movie coming out this this weekend and um, called Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets they're all wonderful terrible sci-fi films but he was talking about <laughs> he was talking about the movie The Fifth Element and how it was his passion project from when he was in high school and how he wanted to put the movie off. He didn't want to make it when he made it. He wished he had put it off longer because it was so complicated to tell the story visually that he wanted to. Mm-hmm. And now with the way the technology has gone, it's so much easier. He said, you can, I can literally just hold a camera instead of doing everything with green screens and the way that I was doing it, I can hold a camera and just digitally insert what I want to be on. So, in, in much the uh, same. but I have something to say. I <laughs> really uh, life of a screenwriter. To tell. 
And here's what I have to say. George Lucas, when he got to re-release <laughs> 4, 5, oh, and yes. 6. I think we know what you're going to say. And the stuff that was John put John. in there. Now, I've... So, you know... <laughs> It's awful. I mean, it's just wretched. The, there's, you know, I mean, there's that whole, they added this stupid song and this dance and, and like all of these creatures that, here's the thing. And I know you hate it when I say that, Robert, but I'm, I just did. Um, here's, here's the thing. If you are going to use technology, right? And I mean, this is not an old argument. If you're going to use, you know, the very best, the top of the line of, of what's available to you, make sure that you know what you want and that it's actually serving the art because none of that stuff served the art all that it did was hey we could add a cool new creature here that we've never seen before and hey we could have a throwback to you know uh we could have another you know here's boba fett over here in the corner isn't that cool like because he was hanging out on this planet and it's like what was the purpose of that right okay there's not really a purpose for that um other than it would look really cool. But I loved like interviews with Steven Spielberg where he's like, yeah, we had to figure out how to make Luke's whatever vehicle that was. That, wait, what is it, Robert? I know you know what it's called. Which vehicle? The one that he rode on his home planet, like with, oh, with Obi-Wan to the, what is it? His land speeder. Thank you. Yes, his land speeder. Exactly. When they were getting ready to, to do that scene with the land speeder, you know, he said we had to use Vaseline on the film strip to like to sort of blur out the wheels that were actually on on that sorry spoiler maybe for someone but um i love that because years i think they've seen it oh right that's true yeah it's probably true (laughs) (laughs) like the the um the but it's like finding out that santa claus doesn't exist (laughs) there were wheels on his we'll have to put a warning it's called land speeder (laughs) children under 12 should not listen to this podcast Unless they want Christmas to be ruined. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, I, I feel like practical effects are require a lot more of us um, as far as, well, okay, I'll, I'll have a little, bit of a, a little bit of a caveat, generally require a lot more of us in order to achieve the kind of result that we want. So even though he was saying, like, I wish I'd had, you know, the green screen effects that, that we could have today, da 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 you know... At the same time, I'm like, oh, man, I'm just so glad you didn't because the amount of creativity that had to be poured into how how am I going to actually make this scene work? Now, I imagine that there are a few things that just didn't land quite the way he wanted to because, again, the technology didn't exist. But like it's become so common today in in huge action, big budget films to, you know, have, have the scene where everyone's fighting and you just throw a bunch of CGI together and you have all of these graphic designers putting together a cool fight sequence, but it doesn't actually tell a story. It doesn't actually move anything forward. It's just, um, you know, because, because you're not having the director in there in it, you're having designers do it and they don't have a stake in the creative, um, you know, in the creative storytelling, they have a stake in the sort of creative looking cool. And I, I, I will agree with part of that. And again, it goes to the fact that I think that, but that, but this goes with anything. And I, I'm somebody that certainly I prefer the practical effects when it comes to Star Wars. Um, however, thank you. First off, uh, I'm not the designer. <laughs> I, it's not. I'm not the one that's making the art. I'm consuming the art, so it's not my decision. It was George Lucas's decision. Um, and you, you know, we can't we can't always make things for people that we make art because we make art. And whether or not the vast majority of people felt that his decisions were or were not art, it was his creation, and he thought he was making art. And, and I do, I do say, I do agree with you that there are certainly situations I've, you know, heard stories about the way that movies are made sometimes now where it's just moving from set piece to set piece to set piece and it's less about making the story, but you talk about using practical effects and if, if everything has to be practical effects, then animated films can't exist, um, because none of them are practical. They are by nature, people designing things, drawing things, or now using 
CGI to tell a story. And especially, I mean, I liked Disney before, but I have a two-year-old now, so we watch a lot of Disney. And there are some phenomenal stories that are told there. So just because the medium and the other idea that the director has no control over um, what's being created or designed in a graphic situation, in a, like a graphic design situation, I think is underestimating the amount of work that goes into it. And also, um, it's really kind of, it's, 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 judging, it's judging that art a little bit from kind of on high. And I think that becomes dangerous especially in our industry where we as opera singers have, I mean, I, I say to my wife all the time, you know, the, the biggest thing that I miss about having not gone to music school is I remember when I used to like music. Hmm. I can't, I can't listen to music. I, I have a hard time listening to pop music anymore because it's painful. I, I analyze things, you know, my, and my mom who is not a, um, she was, she's not classically trained. Nobody in my, Nobody in my entire family had ever seen or heard an opera before I began a career as an opera singer. Um, You know, she listened, she'll call me and she goes, you know, you, in many, she's like, I was just, Andrea Bocelli's song came on and somebody around me said, oh, listen to how wonderful he is. She's like, and you ruined him for me because you... (laughs) (laughs) What she's is you you educated me on what I'm listening to into the 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 quality of the tone that he's using and now I, I I agree that the tone that he uses in many of his pop songs is a choice but it's not a choice that I care for and because I explained to my and educated my mom on what I had learned and discovered on my own she's kind of joined me in that so we as opera singers have a tendency to look down our nose at other other art forms and other technology and it, it gets a little dangerous when we can look at oh well that's just a you know that's done by graphic design there's not any love that's put into it well is it's it's easier to look at a handmade set and be like look at look at all the effort that went into that when you know i my i have family that works in the graphic design industry and there's a great deal of love oh my gosh my brother's a graphic designer i have huge respect for graphic design that's that that's that's not really what i'm saying i'm i'm more i'm more talking about the point that you you sort of talked about a little bit you know the, this sort of you know set piece to set piece to set piece kind of thing that's that's more what i'm absolutely. what i'm talking and about that, and and, and there's a place for it and absolutely there's incredible artistry that goes into it like that's 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 not a question i mean yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I, I misunderstood then. I, I do think it, it can become a slippery slope, though, that, you know, there's... Exactly. There's been some... Because you have, along the same lines with the, like, the the slip... The, um you know, the set piece to set piece, there, there are opera companies that, like... I remember I got tickets to go see something at uh, an A-house that I won't say what it is, and I couldn't go, so I gave the tickets to my wife and her friend. And she came home, and I said, how was the production? And she said awful and I said why was it awful and she said the sets were phenomenal the the costumes were gorgeous the singing and the acting were some of the worst I'd ever seen I was bored to death and so what you have there is set piece to set piece Mm -hmm. because you made a giant set and didn't pay attention to how the story was told and you can do the exact same thing with a giant set as you can with a graphic you know with a design digital projection um I don't remember where I read it, but uh, just the idea of not putting our art in a museum and expecting people to come to us, um, there's, there is, especially since we basically exist in a mostly you know, 18th century, 19th century European art, mm-hmm. uh, it is it is easy to say, well, this is what we do. Why don't you guys, why doesn't the audience want to come see it? We're putting on the best because it's not what they like. And, um, I think it's more than that though. I think it's, it's mostly, I think honestly it's because they don't know it and because it hasn't been presented in such a way that they can accept it. Like as, as a, I, I was thinking about this today, actually about, I was, I was having a German coaching 
because I'm trying to speak German. <laughs> it's a process. Um, and and yeah. we were having we were having a very a very interesting conversation of Deutsch um, about you know why why is it so important in Italy and why is it so important in Germany and why is it not so important in other countries like like you know France even though there are French operas you know and England and here even though there are English operas and I've thought about it in the sense that like you know it really does come down to how much the culture is defined by it you know or or you know you know holds on to it and I, f I feel like there's there's a lot of nationalism maybe some of the only nationalism left in Germany is because of opera and sure. um, and Italy it's I mean everyone goes down the street singing it right so it's like right. it's it's a part it's a part of them and how do you make opera a part of this culture I mean I kind of feel like the hipster generation might actually do that for us if if we can if we can keep delivering something that is interesting to them and unique I don't know yeah I, I, I mean, I struggle with that, and I, I, I tend to think even though I really enjoy, I enjoy the art form, and I enjoy performing the art form, and I enjoy seeing the art form, I tend to think that it's ultimately not an American art form. So I think it's a European art form, specifically an Italian and a German art form. It's not something that, you know, it wasn't something that was created. I think musical theater is an American art form. And, jazz, uh, jazz, I, baby. Yeah. <laughs> but even so, you look at jazz, and jazz is dying. So I think rock is and roll. Is it, or did they just say that in La La Land? No, I think jazz is dying, and I think Aww. that I think that rock and roll is an American art form, and I I think that musical theater is thriving because it adapts with the times, regardless of how you know we or I personally may feel about the whole jukebox musical. Um, you know, the idea of taking um, ABBA's songs and turning it into Mamma Mia or taking Green Day's songs. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's, she's I, got and, something uh, caught in her throat. Sorry. Sorry about that. <laughs> I, 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 did, I did that. That is a viewpoint, and I may not care for it, but it doesn't change the fact that it's one of mo the most popular Broadway musicals of all time, and we're try struggling to sell a 300-year-old opera, you know, Abba so, has catchy tunes. Well, Let's face that, it. it does have catchy tunes, and it also speaks to a culture. It speaks to an American culture. It speaks to people who understand so, it, recognize it, and you know, we we um, I think if we say, well, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna do, um, uh, we're gonna do marriage, or we're gonna do marriage Figaro in you know, uncut in the original translation. Don't do it, man. Gonna, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> do it's a it. bad idea. <laughs> we're going to do Cozy, uh, you know, in period, in period costumes mm. on cut. And I'm like, that's not, you're not going to have anybody come. Because, or if you know, do, they might, they, 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 but they the might thing is, is that we studied it. And so that's why we think it's beautiful. People who haven't studied it. And this does go to what you're saying, Rachel, that they, that we haven't brought it to them. You're, we're not just going to shout it from the rooftops and say, we're really good. Come hear us. It's so good. Why don't you come see it? I don't understand why you don't like it. Because all that does, because if I said, you have to go see this, this is the greatest thing. You, I don't understand why you don't see it. Why won't you go see it? I, I, most people, <laughs> I, there's going to be a contrarian that's, you know, in, in each person that's going to say, yeah, I, I, I'm good. That's not what I like. And there's such a stigma against opera that the only yeah. way... The only way that we're going to get it to a younger, newer generation is if we stop trying to put opera in a museum and say, you have to come see this. Look how great this is. You have to bring it to them. There's a company, actually, L.A. is, um, LA uh, uh, opera in Los Angeles does a fairly good job at this, and so does opera in New York, actually. Um, a company called Pacific Opera Project updates and you know, Rachel, you and I work there, and yep. they up, they update everything. And uh, there's a lot of opera purists that don't necessarily like what they do, but they update their plots. They do a lot of English translation to to things that make sense to a modern audience. They update the super titles so that they're witty and modern, and and they have a very humorous. Yeah, they Quite. have a very young fan base, and they have a fan base. They have an audience. 
um, Long Beach Opera does things that are uh, more intimate and um, they're they're a little bit more off the beaten path and uh, they're a little bit more avant-garde and they have an audience. Um, the Industry, which is another opera company in L.A., does they do um, things like, I don't remember what the name of the opera was, but it was set in in cars where people would drive around in traffic. Yeah, it's, it, it, their it, work is very immersive. It's very sort of like exper- experimental, like within, sure. you know, but, the outside guess world. What? They, they, guess what? They have people come to their shows. For sure. Uh, and so, and all three of those companies reach their audiences through in a different way, whether it's doing um, new avant-garde pieces or doing on-location performances in places that are interesting and new or updating things. And in each one of those, I'm sure there's an opera purist that will say, yeah, that's not opera. Well, it is now. I, I If I may, I, I've just, my mind is going crazy. I want to say some things. I'm going to bring this back around to the other thing that I wanted to bring up earlier, um, if I may, but you mentioned, Robert, that you, you spoiled Andrea Bocelli for your mother. Is that right? Yes, I did. Yeah, so so the question is, so we have, and then we have um, Pacific Opera Project that's sort of dumbing down. Let's just, I mean, I'm just using, I'm not using that derogatorily. I'm just saying they kind of are dumbing down opera to be able to make it more accessible. Mm-hmm. And they do have a following as a result. So what's what's the middle ground, I guess? Um, because the, the other thing I wanted to bring up earlier was about... Uh, an interview with Lenore Rosenberg, actually, who recently recently retired from the Met. And one of the points she made that I found really interesting is that she doesn't feel like singers are enjoying singing anymore. Hmm. Um, and, and it's sort of this idea of, you know, what you were saying earlier, which is you, you start singing because you love it, and then you go to enough school to where there are so many voices in your mind telling you all the little things that you have to pay attention to and, and you kind of start to go crazy because, um, you've just got so many things to keep in mind in order to do this and that right. Um, and then you don't love it anymore and you're not just sort of singing. So there's a, there's a, there's the ruining it for your mother, ruining Andrea Bocelli and there's the ruining it, us ruining our experience with singing through, um, sort of, over-education or um, trying to be correct. And that's the same thing that the, the opera snobs, they wanted to be correct. And so they're sort of ruining opera for uh, maybe a younger generation or a, another group of people who don't relate to um, to opera in its, in its purest form. Along with that, let me say one more thing, because then I want to hear your ideas. Um, <laughs> I had an experience a couple of weeks ago. I performed at a family reunion. And I did uh, I did Stardust on my ukulele with jazz chords, and then I and I sang my version, which was not with an operatic voice; it was with my jazz voice. And um, in addition to that, I also was part. I just sang with the entire group. We sang this children's song, "I Am a Child of God," and I sang a descant part, and I sang the descant in a, a classical voice. And my aunt. Uh, came to me afterward and she said I loved what you did with that last number I'm a child of God and I was like oh uh, okay because I thought she would compliment me on my solo number Um, but for her she found the classical singing to be so much more moving or poignant or it it carried so much more weight with her and I said that's interesting that you say that because so many people tell me specifically they love my jazz voice because of its clarity and whatever, they just they just love the way that it sounds. And she said to me, "Well, maybe they just aren't familiar with classical music." <laughs> and I thought, "Well, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I sing I sing both of the styles. I, I definitely enjoy the jazz more. It's definitely an American art form. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I don't put any pressure on myself when I do it because I get to do it natu- more naturally, I guess. So anyway, discuss, discuss." Um. I think the first aspect that you talked about ruining kind of goes hand in hand. Um, when I, you know, when we have, when we go through, um, when we go through years and years of education and we get told what's right because we're trying to, um, take an art form and put it in academia and you have to 
give people grades when you're in academia, and so there becomes a right and a wrong. Um, you 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 have this I you have these you know you have people and you have so much pressure as to what's right and what's wrong. Plus, since we're all putting like really the souls and the hearts of ourselves out there, it's very exposed, and we're all afraid of being judged. And there's constant level of judgment um, from other singers. And I I'm a very strong believer that performers and singers all have um, imposter syndrome, just every one of us, the idea that um, they're going to find out that we don't belong, that mm. somebody's going to realize that we're not good enough. I, mm-hmm. I, every single one of us have, I know I personally, every time I go to, a, um, I start a production, I get beyond freaked out and paranoid um, and scared the week before the first rehearsal um, into the first rehearsal until I've sung my first notes and then I've gotten through the first sing through and then I realize, oh, I do belong. Yeah. It's that. I can relate. <laughs> and I think every singer can. And the thing is, is that I think that that fear and that imposter syndrome drives us all to be scared. And so what happens is we end up judging ourselves and we end up judging each other. And it's uh, this high stress. Um, very pressurized thing where it has to be right, it has to be right, it has to be right. We're all very product-oriented and not process-oriented. Mm. Uh, where I the have most an idea, but finish your thought and then I'm going to jump in. The most important thing is the performance, and people don't pay as much attention. I, you know, I, performance for me, when I get to the actual performance, is a little bit whatever. And it's interesting to say, and I have people say, really, you don't get excited for performance? I'm like, I don't get the emotional high for performance because if I did my job during rehearsal, that's what I care about. The process is what I care about. The product mm. it's, should be a product of what the process is. We shouldn't be building and then put everything on the product. Everything should be on the process. And so we have – but there's all this it's, – it's right, it's right. You know, if, if somebody cracks on a note in a performance, then – they know that they're going to be judged and they you know, we have people cancel canceling performances because they get a little bit sick. And if they get one bad review, it could be the end of their career. And there's, mm-hmm. there's all of this pressure. And then I think the people that ruin opera are actually those people. It's, mm. it's us. It's the purists. And we are the purists because we have studied it. And because we know what's right and we only want what's right to be, shown you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. it's we we have put opera up on a pedestal and that's the only thing that's acceptable and that's the only thing that we're going to want to bring to people and it's the only thing that's going to be okay to show to an audience never minding that there may be a different vision of it there may be a different viewpoint there may be a different interpretation of how a line is sung and yeah the fact that we don't allow for the human experience to, yeah, there's going to be, I mean, there's nights where every, um, one of my favorite comments is it's not opera unless there's cracks, you know, there's, if, if there's, if it's a performance that we're, uh, you know, how many performances can you see where there has literally been zero cracks in the entire performance cracks happen, but every single one of them, especially speaking as a tenor is it's, you know, it's death. It's the worst possible thing that could ever happen. And the, to put that amount of pressure on each note, um, that it can't be, that it can't, that it can't have any flaws, um, yeah. takes it out of the human experience and kind of puts it up on a pedestal in a way that, you know, I, I, I kind of, I hope that makes sense. That yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, we kind of yeah. ruin it for ourselves, and then we try to make somebody else. We only will let. Um, that version of it be shown and so we kind of ruin it for the audience we as opera how many times have you heard an opera singer or some opera person say well that's not opera we put ourselves (laughs) above we put ourselves above other performance yes we put ourselves above musical theater i don't necessarily see the other industries doing this to towards towards each other i i don't necessarily see musical theater look down at their noses 
at opera people or people who are involved in plays or people who are involved in concerts in all these other live performance you know and kind of set themselves apart and say oh well we're musical theater that's not musical theater that you know what i mean it's it's just an, this interesting thing that we as an industry do and need in my opinion need to fight against absolutely all right now i'm going to jump in okay when when you've studied the art form of opera you realize because of everything else that we've talked about right you realize how much goes into it like it isn't it isn't the quote unquote natural voice it is the it is the olympic work of the voice right you can say to someone i'm going to go and watch my friend um go on the skating rink and she's going to go and uh, do a routine and won't that be lovely and that is not the same as seeing someone compete in the olympics right i can go around the ice rink a few times and but 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 i'm going to i'm going to address this because i can already feel you being like but cuz the thing is regardless regardless of how much time and effort and everything that it takes to put in like to, that goes into making an art form that is sort of otherworldly and is the stretching of every muscle and every part of you um that does not invalidate someone else's expression and when when you talk about it and i think this is what you're saying like you you have to speak about it in such a way that you are able to speak about the elevating quality of what opera can be and sometimes is without saying it's so much better than I, be, right I, <clears throat> I agree that we we need to do more of talking about how we can elevate without denigrating the other industries yeah. and what about this too i'm going to throw this thought in comparison is the thief of joy yes so i had i had an experience singing um Tan Dunn's Water Passion after St. Matthew, which is very much set in, a, in an operatic style. It's oratorio. And um, I had to sing high Ds, E flats, and Es. Um, and normally that's, that's a challenge for me. But in this particular setting, because I had A, never heard it before, and B, I've never heard of it since, actually, either. It got to be my own performance. I got to look at the score and, and figure out what the composer wanted. And then I got to be an artist and I got to shape it. And those notes came out of me with ease and with pleasure because I wasn't comparing myself to every soprano who's ever sung all of these other arias and roles that, that I'm supposed to sing as part of the standard repertoire and the things that get done over and over and over again. So, so what's... The, why do we do that? I don't know. I like, mean, I, I having recordings. Thing. Yeah, I mean, having recordings um, is, in, you know, is wonderful in some ways. And in other ways, it's really, really terrible. Like, it, it, as a, I think as a freshman, I remember, no, no, I was a sophomore. As a sophomore, I talked to my teacher and she said, well, have you listened to recordings? And I said, I, I can't. Like, if I listen to recordings, then I copy what they're doing. Or I try to, and that's a problem because then I'm copying result instead of process. I think... There's that, but then the comparison thing, right? It's by nature, right? It's sort of survival. Like we have to compare. It's like, well, if I stand in the sunshine, is that going to deplete me of energy? I should stand in the shade, right? Like compare one location to another. But those, you know, maybe that's a terrible example. Um, but like, yeah, sorry. It's just that the sun's coming in the window and I'm getting really warm and I'm like, oh, I want to turn the fan on, but it's too loud. Um, so, um, it's, you know, it's like, do I... Uh, yeah, I, this is something that I was so grateful for in college. I went to school where everybody in my class, you know, there were only 12 of us. So one, there weren't a bazillion people that we could be com comparing ourselves with because it was, you know, a small amount of people. One, we all had extremely different voices, too. And three, like, I just didn't like it in the sense that, like, when people started to saying, oh, you know, she's a it's like, you know what? Um, that does that doesn't matter. You know, if we can if we can get beyond it by saying everyone has a journey and everyone is in a different place and and everyone's path is going to be a little bit different and just take away that comparison, then, yeah, you don't have to, you know, you it, it will be your own. It's so hard, though, 
when there are a gajillion singers and about five jobs. And this is the practical aspect of this is that for each, like I said, you know, you can lift up a rock and find four more sopranos. And so the two of you have to constantly compete against each other and every other soprano on the planet. See, but, but like we don't though. I never have rock, felt. Why, why are the sopranos under a rock? Yeah. What I you doing putting us under a rock? Huh? You'll have to ask them. <laughs> so, Where's the tenor? Is he standing on the rock? There's about about two of us, and we all have the job because there's not very many of us. Yeah, yeah. No. So, So, I mean, the the thing is, is that, um, yes, it's, and I would love to live in the utopia where we don't compare ourselves to each other, but it's so hard when we literally are competing against each other for the same jobs. But you're not. not. You're not because at the end of the day, you are going in to give your work and everyone is going in to give their work and it is not up to you who decides. So why do we try to decide? Why do we try? Why do we bother it? Because if you don't, because if you, because if you, (laughs) if you go in and you say, and yes, I, I love, auditioning actually um i like going in i treat it like it's a performance and i give them who i am so little side story i i did a i did a voice competition and i made it to the finals and um i was my character tenor's self and i bubbles the clown my way through the performance <laughs> meaning that everybody else sang these big dramatic arias and I sang two very comic arias one of which I put my jacket on my head to pretend it was raining and then hid behind it because a bear was coming and then in the other aria I cracked on my high notes on purpose and then pulled my groin and fell down to the ground so I did all of that in the midst of this voice competition and uh, scene and, <laughs> and I took fifth place and even still my wife during the finals um was in the restroom and overheard a woman say yeah that guy he just did too much there was just too much i just couldn't get i didn't get any of his voice there was just too much and so i do go into auditions and i give the best of myself and if somebody likes it great if somebody doesn't like it great i can't control whether or not you know however there does come a point there does come a point where I can go into audition after audition after audition and continue to give my best and I'm not getting cast. So at what point after a year or so of auditioning and not being cast, do you go, okay, maybe I should compare, you know, what's going on. There's a level of self-evaluation that comes because we do need to live in a realistic world where we can't just. That's very mature, Robert. That's a very mature thing to say. Yeah. Well, I mean, like you think about, right, we, we, one of our first podcasts, or maybe it was our first, we talked about Florence Foster Jenkins, right? I mean, the ultimate person who lived in their own reality. And yet, and, and part of it, you know, part of the reason she loved music so much was because she did that, right? Like she, I mean, she would do the comparison thing or whatever, but she just sort of thought that she was in her own league and in her own world. But because of that, I think she sort of saved herself emotionally um, from a lot of scarring. Um, but, and, yeah. and, and she didn't, she, you know, she maybe didn't do the level of comparison that we do. However, you know, if somebody, there's a certain level of, and we all know singers who run into the situation where they, they audition and they audition and they audition and they are giving the best of themselves, but it's not happening for whatever reason. And so where does the self-evaluation come into play where, and you, you, you have to kind of compare yourself to the, and I think every singer, I mean, I, I knew a singer who was getting gigs left and right. And he still was saying, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to do this because he was reaching where his ceiling was or where he felt his ceiling was because he was constantly kind of looking. And even though he was giving the best of himself in each audition and each performance, there still needs to be a certain level of self-evaluation, and that's dangerous. Because but you just... have to have self-evaluation from the very beginning. I mean, this right. is why you're saying, like, we all feel a bit like imposters, right? Like, we're all... I mean, right. because that, I think, innately will be there. I, I don't think you have to work on that. Like, I mean, maybe there's, like, a few sociopaths that do. But, like, 
Like, but, I, I think if you're a normal person, like, narcissist. yeah, narcissist, exactly. Like, I'm amazing. Like, there, you know, there's, if you're a normal person, you're going to do that. But the comparison, like, recognizing that um, the acceptance of the journey being individual is so hard. And yes, like, you have to, like, Giving yourself a timeline, perhaps, is an important thing at some point, right? Or, you know, you are going up audition, 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 and it's not happening for you. Like, but we have to be truly honest with ourselves. And that doesn't have anything to do with anybody else. Like, everyone else is on their journey. Like, but you you, you take it in for yourself. Like, what? and what is the purpose of this? In the sense that, like, why do I keep doing this? Because sometimes the answer is because you must. And not because, like, I, I you must sing at the Met. I think there's another there's another little aspect in it along and and I to go along with imposter syndrome I I personally this is how I feel and I maybe just assume that all of the singers feel this but I think this doesn't help with the judging aspect is that I think every singer secretly has a fear that they're never going to sing again that they're never going to perform again that all of a sudden the work is just going to dry up that they're never going to get cast again and it'll just be over hmm. because Ultimately, even though we can make art, I mean, this is how I feel. I'll speak for myself instead of, instead of the the myriad of other singers. So personally, even though I've worked as much as I have, and you know, I <laughs> I'm, I'm on my way, I'm on my journey, but I still have this fear that one day it's just going to dry up, and I'm never going to get cast again, and I'll just be done. And um, as much of my own heart and soul and performance that I put out there, and I really do try to. I have a unique product um, that it's I the casting is not under my control as we've talked about um, and that one day my product is not going to be what's wanted and so along with that self-evaluation there's a fear that I'm never going to work again and so I could have a a lyric soprano friend who lives in Germany and announces that she got cast in you know in Faust somewhere in Germany and part of me will be like oh I missed out on that gig I'm a character tenor who lives in California and I had a gig during that time anyway why am I upset about that but <laughs> that's a good question Robert that's a really good question um, I relate though yeah, uh, I, sure. but, I, but that's, that's yeah. the thing is that there's this fear that oh no I missed out again and if I keep missing out FOMO there's going to be a time yeah FOMO that there's going to be this time that I missed out to the point that I there's just nothing else. So there is... I guess there has to be an element of trust, like an element of trusting your own barometer and trusting that um, you're on the right path and that you feel peace about your process and about what you're doing. I also... This, yeah, sorry, go this ahead. Is all, this is also assuming... Uh, that's assuming a lot from a group of people that all got into an industry because they're so emotionally available that they're willing to put their hearts on their sleeves on stage in front of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like this is what we do for a living. We're emotional people. We, we get up there and we sing about uh, losing, losing family members or lost loves or, you know, all of these things that we perform about in opera and, then we go through the industry and have to separate that emotional availability that we have on stage and just kind of, do you know what I mean? Like there has to be a level of. Yeah. Throw me a bone here. Like recognize that. Yeah, no, I get it. Like in the sense that, yeah, we are, we are very emotional and that's going to be, and it's going to be part of it. I want to, I want to say something just really quick. I know we have to wrap up, but. Remember how you were saying, you know, you do all these auditions and then you just aren't getting cast for anything. It's like, when, when do you give up? Well, what if, what, why didn't you give up? You know, why didn't, why didn't you after the second rejection give up? Uh, because, well, because Frank, and this is, you know, my diamond shoes are too tight because frankly, I don't get rejected very often. Um, <laughs> and it's because there's so few of me and I, I, you know, I'm not saying that I'm not good at what I do because I do think that I am. I do think that I'm unique um, in this industry and unique in what I can do. But I also think that um, when I'm when I am doing seven, eight, or nine productions a year, um, it's uh, 
it's an it's enough success to keep me going and i enjoy what i do and sure well no i'm i'm actually but i i'm actually talking about like in the beginning right like let's say you know those two oh. those first two rejections were just too much and like why and and you you know you evaluate and it's like oh man i i just I, this is just not meant to be and you gave up but the thing is like you kept going and i think you kept going because that's your journey and um. That um, makes it valid. I, I, I think I kept going because I didn't have anywhere else to go at the time. I was so it was so early in my life, as an you know early twenty something, and really kind of coming out of a really dark depression and coming out of a really kind of not great and you know rough traumatic childhood. I didn't really know where else to go, and so the easiest path was the one that was in front of me. Um, and so even though I got declined and then got declined again, it was easier to continue down that path than it was to try and start something new. Hmm. Um, and <laughs> Do you still feel that way? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Sorry, some, no, I'm just thinking uh, about opera. I, like, <laughs> no, I mean, so, uh, certainly some days I do. The hardest thing that, I think the hardest thing that a singer can do, or this, the hardest thing that anybody has to do is face their mortality. And as singers, we have to face a mortality of our, our voice and our performance career. Most of us do before we face our actual human mortality. And so we have to face it twice. Well, congratulations on your success. It sounds like it's it's working out really well for you, and that's exciting. Thank you. Things are I think things are headed in the right direction. Excellent. Definitely. Yes, I want to talk more about the mortality rate of a singer, but I think that will have to be another day. But I this was really cool. Um, Robert, thanks for chatting with us, and it was great. Yeah, was my- thanks, Robert. Thank you guys. It was, uh, you know, I've, I, I'm, I'm glad that I was the, the catalyst at the beginning of your friendship to, <laughs> to, to introduce you guys, you know, and I, I loved working with both of you and having the relationships that you, that we have had. So I'm glad that we got to do this. Yay.